Well, our sermon today is uh, we're, we're coming up on the close of a three-part series entitled Waiting on a Son. We've looked at uh, two uh, other episodes, um, but this is our fifth and final one from the Old Testament, our fifth and final supernatural conception of a child, which points forward foreshadows to Christ. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, turn the um, the bulletin there has an error, as uh, were other errors, uh, which are my fault. This is the morning of errors in the bulletin. First uh, Samuel. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to First Samuel. It's the ninth book in the Bible. Please don't feel embarrassed to use the table of contents. Um, I still uh, regularly consult it, especially for the minor prophets. So no, no problems there. The, um, this, this is a unique moment in Israel's history. The backdrop of Samuel's life is exceptionally dire. So the judges period, which we just talked about with Samson, how dire things were with Samson, it degrades even further. Much more violent, much more depraved, and the acceleration of depravity is all the more uh, violent and devastating. Prior to Samson, the Israelites seemed, the text says, to have at least a reference point to the Word of God. You don't need to turn there, but in Judges 13.1, it says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. So the reference point there is they have a reference point, what's evil in the eyes of the Lord. You heard it there in, in verse 1. But by the, end of the, by the end of the Judges, the people of Israel no longer care what the Word of God says. And instead of doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord, they're now doing what's right in their own eyes. They have fully walked away from any reference point to the Lord. It's very similar to our own day and age where uh, we all uh, believe that we can make our own meaning, that we don't look at a reference point anymore to say what is right and wrong, but that we make our own right and wrong. We make our own meaning. We fabricate our own sense of identity and what we think is right. Everyone did what's right in their own eyes, Judges 21, 25, and this is the moment into which Samuel's born, things get so dark, so dire, that at the end of Judges are just the most truly unspeakable things. If you've read your Bible, you know of what I'm speaking, but it is so bleak and so dire at the time Samuel's born. People are not only casting off the words of God, they no longer care, um, but the, the seeds of that rejection is bearing a very, very bitter fruit. This, there's utter confusion and devastation, so much so that the people will eventually long for a king to hopefully fix the mess that they're in. And my hope today is to show us in 1 Samuel, we're going to be in chapters 1 through 3 at a 30,000-foot view, that we see that God is faithful to send a representative who will bring both clarity and comfort, bring both comfort and clarity into this situation. God is never going to leave his people without a word, never going to leave his people without access to his promise, without guidance, without his word, and we see that in Samuel. I want us then to take a very careful look at how Jesus Christ is God's very word. He is the word of God. It's a profound blessing to us. And again, the portion we're covering is three chapters, so we're not going to read every verse. We're going to be traveling at about a 30,000-foot view and make uh, key highlights calling attention to certain aspects and passages when they arrive. Remember, when you're doing biblical theology, you're going and you're looking at themes, not details. Ordinarily in preaching, we look at details. Exodus, 
is our sermon series we've been going details, verse by verse, lifting out words and discussing their meaning. But here we're flying over, we're looking at the terrain, and we're looking forward to where we're going. And we're trying to put together the pieces of the topography to understand what's happening over the scope of things. So I'm not going to read all of uh, 1 Samuel 1, 3. I practiced, I tried to see how long it would take, and it would have taken about 40 minutes for me to do. So that would not be the best use of our time. So I'm going to summarize the, the first three chapters of 1 Samuel, and then I'm going to read particular points along the narrative so we can get a sense for what's happening. So 1 Samuel, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to 1 Samuel because we still want to call your attention to it. It opens with the introduction of a character named Hannah. She's a really remarkable woman. Hannah is deeply distressed about her inability to have a child. And she's taunted by her sister wife. She fervently prays at the temple in Shiloh, and she promises the Lord that if the Lord would give her a son, she would give the son back to the Lord for the Lord's service. And so God's, the next thing that happens is God's, uh, God gives Samuel to Hannah. Uh, God keeps his promise, answers her prayer, and she gives birth to Samuel. True to her promise, as soon as Samuel is weaned, Hannah takes the baby to the temple and presents him to Eli, the priest there, at Shiloh, and dedicates him to the Lord's service. Hannah's a sweet mother, though. We'll see in just a minute. I'll just call it out now. Verse 19 says every, every year she goes up there, she makes him a new robe. So you, she never stops being his mom. She still thinks about him and cares for him. Uh, so she's not cold. She still is motherly towards him. She just understands that God has a particular purpose for Samuel. The next thing, if you were just reading through in chapter 2, you'd see that Eli the priest has worthless sons. His sons are, as young people might say today, just complete trash. They are completely worthless. They're corrupt. They're, they're wicked. They steal. And uh, the two sons, Hopni and Phineas, are priests who abuse their position. They sin against God and the people by stealing from them. And despite Eli's mild rebuke, they don't change their ways. They have no regard even for their father's, uh, for their father's discipline. And then, so the Lord prophesies against Eli's house and says, this is, this is over. If we kept reading, then that same, that same area, as soon as, as soon as the line of Eli is exterminated and said, this, this is not the line of priests that are going to faithfully speak my word, God calls Samuel three times, very similar to what happens to Abraham, and he says... Uh, he, he calls him in the middle of the night, and Samuel hears the call of God, and he responds to it. And then he is faithful. Eli, uh, he's, Samuel's faithful to God and tells Eli the news that his line is no longer faithful. God is going to judge it. He's going he's gonna to bring judgment upon Eli's house, and that Samuel now will be the prophet. And then it concludes, chapter 3, with Samuel's rise to a prophet. So that's, that's the 30,000-foot view. We're going to look at a few, chat, a few high points here, but the reason I want us to sketch that out is in the arc of Samuel's life, we're going to see God's blessing, right? We're going to see God's blessing. We're going to see God keep his promise. We're going to see the effects of sin, and then we're going to see how God responds to the effects of sin. He doesn't excuse it, but then we're also going to see the future promise of a deliverer. So first, let's see, let's meet Hannah again and see that we can find comfort by praying to God. We can find comfort by praying to God. There's a remarkable text here. 
in, uh, we're, in, we're in chapter 1, verse 9, is, is uh, where I'll, I'll be in just a second. But we're in, we're in a remarkable text here where, from Longing's mother perspective, we're hearing her words. And outside of the Virgin Mary's response to the, uh, to the angel's announcement, we don't have as large of an internal picture about how one of these women's experience with barrenness, uh, we don't have a record of that outside of Hannah's to the degree that we have here. We get a great inside view of what Hannah is. And I think it's, again, always helpful to compare and contrast Hannah, right, and her experience with the future fulfillment, the experience of Mary. So the first person we meet in this text is Hannah, right? And it's interesting because she's technically the third person named here. So her husband is named first, right? And then uh, Hannah is named, but we don't get to really meet her yet. We meet her, the other wife of Elkanah, uh, Penaniah. So she's technically third. Why is she third here? We're seeing the echoes of other rival relationships in, uh, in the Bible. We're seeing the other women, remember, who were barren, had rival women with whom they, they had strife. So for Sarah, she had Hagar, and for Leah, there was Rachel. Her, Elinai's wife is taunting Hannah for inability to have children. Look at me, look at me in verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Let's pause for a moment and just point out how utterly cruel this is. How utterly cruel it is that she recognized that it was the providence of, God's, of God in Hannah's life that her womb would be closed, and uh, she would taunt her for it. But we don't have to openly taunt people to be cruel in the midst of people's suffering or even insensitive in the face of God's providences, do we? We don't have to openly mock someone. Sometimes we can just minimize the bitter providence that God might have in somebody's life, the bittersweet providence, by saying, oh, it's going to be okay. You know, uh, Morgan and I, early on, uh, I asked Morgan for permission to share this. We really struggled to have children. And uh, one of the things that was always, uh, you know, just always difficult was when people would be like, oh, it's going to be okay. Uh, it, and the thing is, it might not be okay. It, it might not be okay, and it might not actually get better for us. It will always be good. It will always be good. I know that to be true. But we might have to wait for glory until we receive that good. Paul prayed for the thorn to be removed from him, right? And God wouldn't take it away. So it, it might not get okay, but it will always be good that might be one way to be insensitive, right, that we could have been insensitive to Hannah here. But another, another way, right, would be to just dismiss it altogether and say it's not that big of a deal. Just be stronger, Hannah. But Hannah's not going to be able to have a child here apart from God's supernatural action because, verse 6, he's closed her womb for this particular purpose. One of the kindnesses, right, of her husband, this is one of the ways that we can uh, learn from this, brothers. Verse 8 Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Admittedly, this is not the most romantic line ever spoken in the canon of romance literature. But contextually, it's really, really significant. He's essentially saying that Hannah is worth more than his nest egg. Because in this day and age, until the creation of compound interest in the Social Security Administration, your nest egg was sons. 
That was it. You had boys. And if you didn't have boys or girls that you could marry off to boys, you had nobody else to work the fields, nobody else to keep the cattle, nobody else to run the business. There was no Social Security Administration. Sons were the source of future financial security. So we know he loves her also independent of this because verse 5 already told us that he would go and give a double portion for Hannah. Hannah, however, right, doesn't ever wallow in her sorrow or in her despair. She goes to the Lord. The text says that she rose, that she rose and went up. Verse 9, they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh. Hannah rose, a small and yet deliberate step. No small feat when in the depths of darkness where you don't want to get up, where you don't want to eat. It's not a small feat to just get up, to, to get out of the bed, to put on the shoes, to go for a walk. When the darkness won't lift, doing that small thing is a tremendous feat. And Hannah is not giving herself over to destruction. She is in despair, but she's a hero because she gets up. She's not despairing, and she doesn't wallow. She gets up. And if you've never experienced despair before, sometimes, again, that is the hardest part. Hannah has made the conscious decision to get up because she recognizes what we have to recognize sometimes, that we can't and won't solve all the problems at, the, at that one time when the darkness won't lift. Sometimes it's best when we're overwhelmed by life to just do the next right thing, to just take the next best step. She's not laid out her whole plan, and she doesn't even need to. She just decides, I'm going to get up, and I'm going to go pray. The text tells us that she's still, even though she's decided to get up, verse 10, she's deeply distressed and prays to the Lord and weeps bitterly. Now, praise the Lord for Phil reminding us that the Puritans asked for the gift of tears. When Jesus meets uh, Mary and Martha at Lazarus' womb, uh, at his tomb, and uh, he, the first thing he does is he cries. And he gives the ministry of his tears. In the midst of her weeping, she prays to God. And I'm going to talk about Eli's response in just a moment, but see that after praying, verse 18, she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. And then she worships the Lord. So she's no longer in despair, despite before the son is actually given. You see, Hannah prays two prayers in 1 Samuel. The first is a prayer of petition. She's asking for something from the Lord, a prayer of petition. And the second one is a prayer of praise, where she's extolling blessing on the Lord. You see, Hannah's joy, once she does this, she's found comfort by going to God in prayer. She's found comfort in God by going to God in prayer, and her joy is no longer contingent upon having a son. Even if the Lord gives her one, she's already covenanted that she's going to give the child to the Lord. Verse 11, she vowed and said, O Lord of hosts, if you would indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all of his days and no razor shall touch his head. Oftentimes, we will put God to the test. And you've already heard my story elements of this where I'll say, if God, you would do this, then I'll believe this or then I'll know that you're good. But Hannah, sisters and brothers, Hannah is a, a wonderful example of godliness. 
Because you see, as one commentator pointed out, we might have expected the order of things to go this way. First, uh, first, she would pray. Then second, she would get pregnant. And then third, she'd be joyful. And then the storms of her life dissipating because she got what she asked for. But that's not what the text says. That's not even really the pattern of how God answers prayers in the Bible. What we see in 1 Samuel instead is that Hannah has gone to the Lord. She's prayed. And then she is joyful. And she's not, she doesn't get pregnant because she's joyful, because she's got it right. She, ultimately, the Lord opens up her womb because the Lord is doing something. But she says, and she resolves, I will bless the Lord, right, independent of this. I don't need the son. If you'd give me a son, I'd love it, but he can be yours. She's joyful, and then she gets pregnant. She has found her joy in knowing God's salvation. We'll see in her second song, in her song in chapter 2. Look at me in 1 Samuel 2, 1. This is, this is after she's already gone through the despair. She's picked herself up. She's worshiped the Lord. She's gone away. And now she says in verse 1, My heart extols in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. God, however, does grant Hannah a son. And she does indeed give the boy to the Lord after he's weaned. She keeps her word, and he keeps her word. And I, I hope by this point you can think uh, canonically. You can think ahead and think about other mothers who have given their children, their sons, to the Lord's service. And we'll do that now by comparing what is one of the longest prayers in the Old Testament, one of the most beautiful prayers in the Old Testament, which bears a striking resemblance to a prayer prayed, a prayer of praise uh, prayed by Mary, uh, which we traditionally call her Magnificat. So let me just compare them, okay? So keep 1 Samuel 2 in front of you. I'm going to read the whole thing, and I'm going I'm to make observations after I read it and compare it to Mary's song, and then I'll make some observations after that. 1 Samuel 2, let's listen to her prayer Verses 1 through 10. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Not, I rejoice in my pregnancy. I rejoice in your salvation. There is, no, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who have hired themselves out for bread, and those who were hungry have ceased, no, ceased to hunger. The barren have borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down a shield and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dead. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail." The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. There's some remarkable links between Hannah's prayer here and Mary's song of praise. The first is that both are given in the context of dedicating a child to the Lord. Mary, Mary prays hers after she receives the news that she will be bearing uh, the baby boy Jesus. 
Hannah has just done this after she's dedicated her son. She's given her son to the Lord. Both speak about the sovereignty of God. Hannah's, the power of her life and death, the poor and the rich. Mary is the exact same thing, exalting God's strength, his ability to humble the proud and raise the humble. There's a reversal of fortunes that they both prophesy and sing about, that when the Messiah comes, those who are poor will be made rich, and those who are rich will be made poor. Both are about holiness. Hannah's declaring that there's no one like the Lord and Mary's singing of God's greatness and glory. And both acknowledge that it's God who is doing the work, not them. That's our comfort. We can find comfort by going to God in prayer. Hannah did this. Her joy was not contingent upon her getting comfort. Her joy was on meeting the Lord and tasting and seeing his salvation. But we don't just need comfort, we also need clarity in our modern age. And we can find clarity by listening to God. Another important theme in 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 3 is the problem or the lack of clarity. There, this is most clear in the odd exchanges that Eli has with Hannah when she's praying during a prayer, the worthlessness of Eli's boys, and then contrasting that with Eli or with, with Samuel, who hears the word of God, and goes and announces to Eli God's word. So let's talk about Eli's blindness first. Eli's the priest who's ministering at the holy place at Shiloh. The translation that you have in front of you says temple, and so it's probably not the temple because that hasn't been built yet, but it's some permanent structure where the people will go to and they will offer sacrifices and worship the Lord. So Eli's sitting there, he's sitting at the, at the door, and he sees Hannah come in, and he speaks a rather harsh word to her in 1 Samuel 1, 13 through 14. He, he sees that Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunk woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you, he said. It's kind of a harsh word to speak to somebody who's weeping. We learn later this could be because Eli might be blind or have very, very bad eyesight, like your boy Zach Carter, for Samuel 3.2, right? But his blindness could have been spiritual as well. He's a judge of Israel, and he's not even keeping his own household. His sons are like worthless men. They are worthless men. Just a quick word, boys and young men, don't become worthless men, Okay? All right, Christian, can you promise me not to become that, right? Eli does not intervene until late in life regarding the abuses of his sons, the theft that they commit. So either he's physically blind to it, which is possible, but more likely he's spiritually blind to it, doesn't care, perhaps. The text, 1 Samuel 2, 13 through 17, describes what they did. Look with me, verse, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. The custom of the priest with the people was that any man offered sacrifice, the priest servant would come, and with the meat that was boiling, with a three-pronged fork in hand, he would thrust in the pan, keller pot, and all that was on the fork he could have for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, they would take as much as you wish. He would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I'll take it by force. 
Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, that's a really bizarre statement. So let me just kind of break it down for you. If you're, uh, if you're thinking about the, the law and how the, the law of Moses has set things up, uh, the priests don't have land. They have no way to, to procure supplies for themselves. And so one of the ways they do this, one of the ways God provides for them is they get to eat a share of the offerings, but they could only eat the boiled meat. And to make sure they ate a reasonable amount, it would be a three-pronged fork. Not, not tongs, not a spoon, but a three-pronged fork that could stick in the pot. Whatever was out, they got to eat. But these guys are particularly wicked because they're trying to intercept the lamb. They want the mutton before it goes in the pot because they want the fat. They want to get fat off the people of God. They want to steal their offering. And before the burnt offering goes up to the Lord where the fat is burned off, they want that fat. They want it to be delicious. They want to roast the meat because who likes boiled meat? Let's be real, right? Roasted meat is way better. The mild reaction is incredible, but these men are stealing from the Lord because the fat belongs to the Lord. And Eli doesn't intervene. He, for whatever reason, waits for their embezzlement, Right? These, these, these young men, these sons, they're embezzling from the Lord. So whether Eli's blind or not, whether he's physically blind or not, he turns a blind eye just like so many other judges before him. They don't seem to care about the word of God, the ungodliness of all of those around them. These are dark times. Not only are they doing as they wish, but 1 Samuel 3.1 describes this as a time where, quote, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. What a devastating time to live in. Can you imagine? Where the word of the Lord is rare. What a gift it is that we have the word of God and we get to hear it every week. You have podcasts that you can listen to it every day, every hour if you wanted to. You have a, you have a Bible app on your phone just when you're Instead of watching your reels or your shorts, you could be reading the Bible. You don't have to do that, but you have an unceasing access to the Word of God. And this time, it's one where the Word of the Lord is rare and there's no frequent vision. So enter young Samuel, Samuel's call. Samuel's purpose had been dedicated from before his birth in four ways, five ways we can look at. Just in Samuel's life, now looking at Samuel's life, he had been prayed for, 1 Samuel 1, 120. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So Samuel had been wanted and planned by the Lord. He had been dedicated to the Lord, 1 Samuel 1.28. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he's lent to the Lord, and he worshiped there. Number three, he's still cared for by his mother, even though he was lent to the Lord. I love, again, the detail from 1 Samuel 2.19. We never, we never graduate from being our mother's children. Is just what I learned from the Bible and life over and over again. 1 Samuel 2.19, his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up there with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. You know, 14-year-old Samuel, you know, just getting a robe every year. It was a very, very sweet detail. Number four, God has favor on Samuel. 1 Samuel 2.26 now the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. And then finally, 
in 1 Samuel 3, 1 through 14, God calls Samuel to be his prophet, to speak on his behalf. He's a true prophet of God. What does it mean to be a true prophet? He relays everything faithfully communicated to him from God. Even when it's a hard word of judgment for Eli, Samuel's faithful to relay that hard word to Eli, the man who raised him. One of the striking statements in Samuel's life occurs in Samuel chapter 3, verse 19. I'll call your attention to it. First, uh, first Samuel 3:19. Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. What does it mean to have words that don't fall on the ground? Words that don't fall on the ground are consequential. They, don't, they have meaning. They bring clarity to confusion. One of the tyrannical lies of our modern age is that you can make your own meaning. Morgan and I were talking about this. It's one of the, these features of modern cinema and television that I really, I really hate. Um, the stories that don't conclude, the stories that just are kind of open-ended at the end of the movie. You're like, well, where, how's this end? Movies like that are bellwethers of people affected by two calamities. And I know you're like, what in the world are you talking about movies? Like, but I promise you, movies are made from worldview. They're made from a way of putting the world together. And these movies show us two things, right? The first is that movies where you make your own ending tyrannize you. They're tyrants because the audience member is involved in resolving the story. And I think it stems because writers don't believe that stories actually end. If you don't believe that there's a creator and you don't believe there's an end of all things, why in the world do you feel like you need to end stories? The problem for us is we're created to live within a redemptive story. We're created by God in a story that he's the author of, that he's the finisher of, and he's bringing about its conclusion. And second, these sort of open-ended kind of uh, stories, they betray a confidence that stories have any meaning at all. Like, why do I need to end a story anyways? It's a genuine mark of our age's genuine emotional despair. Our age is genuinely one of despair. Philosophers talk about this as an age of despair. Um, there's all sorts of stuff. We get in the weeds there. I really like thinking about that kind of stuff, but I won't. It certainly is contributing, however, to our, our current culture's suffering. The late Tim Keller, in an interview he gave with Carrie uh, Newwolf, said that one of the cruelties of this modern age is that you have to make and then perform your own meaning. But it, meaning doesn't work like that. Meaning has to be ascribed from outside. So you and I get crushed by the expectation we have to give our life meaning. Why does my life have any meaning? Well, I have to make my meaning. I have to show why I'm valuable by either what I do or who I am or the face I put on or the, the, uh, the feature of the alphabet which I want to call myself. I have to make my own meaning and give my life purpose. But that doesn't, that's not how meaning works. Meaning and value are ascribed from outside of the thing. The beauty of the Christian gospel is that you have intrinsic value even when you don't think you do because you're made in the image of God. The beauty of the Christian gospel is that you're worthy of movement towards regardless of what you bring to the table. The beauty of the Christian gospel is that God redeemed you when you didn't deserve it so you would never be under the impression that his salvation is transactional, that you can lose it if you're not good enough. The beauty of the Christian gospel is that we receive, we do not perform our meaning from God. 
So the great thing is, is that if we're looking for a consequential word, if, if we feel like we're in the day of Samuel where the word of the Lord feels rare or people are doing whatever is right in their own eyes, we can finally, our last point, we can find God himself in his final word, the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the reasons it's so important to drive home that Jesus Christ is the word of God is because Jesus Christ is the final word. Jesus Christ, the one who added humanity to his divinity to show us the full nature of God as we, when we look at Jesus, we see God. So that what's true about 1 Samuel 3.1, that the word of God is rare in the day of Samuel, is not true about our age. That there are frequent visitations because God is no longer visiting through prophets, but he's dwelling within us, his word being testified to us by his very presence, the Holy Spirit within us. It would not be said of our time because Jesus came that there is no word. Here again, the word of the Lord from Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, who he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sits down at the right hand of majesty, having become much superior to the angels, as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. It's interesting to us, and should be, that there's no other miraculous provision of children after this moment. Why? I think, I suspect, I should say, I suspect, it's to preserve the kingly line that Samuel's going to establish. That is said that, that it won't even be about Samuel anymore. Samuel is, Samuel's sons are going to become worthless too because Samuel isn't even the end of the story. Samuel's pointing forward to the end of the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the messianic expectations of our text have already been set. We talked about Hannah and Mary's. But I want to point out one more. There's no king in Hannah's day. There's not a king, and yet she's anticipating a king over which will be given to Israel, who will have a throne, he'll give strength, he'll defend, judge, and save. That's what she prays at the end of her, of her praise, praying for the king who will be the anointed of God. So to close, I want to reflect on the one true thing that Eli did say and why it always goes back to Jesus. Turn your attention to 1 Samuel chapter 2, 25. If someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? We indeed can intercede, right? Uh, who indeed can intercede when someone sins against God? We can appeal to God when we ask for forgiveness from another. But whom do we appeal when we ask for forgiveness? We ask for forgiveness from God. We're appealing to God himself but praise be to God, we're appealing to the one, as Hebrew 2 said, partook of flesh and blood. So in every way he be made like his brothers, so that he might become a merciful and sympathetic high priest in the service of God. And remind you of the kindness of God to have promised that salvation, that priest of Hebrews 2, all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. So what do we do? What do we do with this text? The first is we embrace Christ and prayer to God as a source of comfort. Just as Hannah found solace 
in joy in her prayers. We will find joy when we seek Christ. And then lastly, seek clarity through God's word. What does God want from us in this day? He leaves us with no questions. He's made plain to us his will for us in the word of God. All scripture is profitable. And everything, as Peter writes, everything necessary for godliness is contained there within. Let's pray.